This is David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. JILV supports the free expression of ideas and opposes the imposition of critical social justice ideology inside and out of the Jewish community. We are pleased to co-sponsor this event, New Paradigms in Black-Jewish Relations with Free Black Thought, a small but growing group of scholars, technologists, parents, and American citizens determined to amplify vital Black voices that are rarely heard on mainstream platforms. Check out the new Journal of Free Black Thought, which you can find on their website, freeblackthought.com. Today, we turn our attention to fresh approaches in Black-Jewish relations, and for that, we have a distinguished panel who I'm going to introduce. First, we have Eric Smith, who's founder of Free Black Thought, a professor of rhetoric. Uh, Dr. Smith is associate professor of rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania and a writing fellow for Heterodox Academy. His latest book, A Critique of Anti-Racism in Rhetoric and Composition, was recently published in by Lexington Press. Next, we have Dr. Brandy Shafatinsky. Brandy is an educator, social worker, and writer and advocate. She has worked towards advancing the rights of victims of and survivors of domestic violence and assault. She is also, I am proud to say, a JILV board member. Uh, she's Jewish herself with kids living in Israel. Uh, last but not least, we have David Ben Moshe. Uh, David grew up in Maryland where he had a troubled youth. He was uh, in a drug gang, which led to an eventual jail sentence. While there, he met somebody studying a book with a script he did not recognize. That encounter set David on a journey that eventually led him to Orthodox conversion, yeshiva study, marriage, and the battle to be permitted to live in Israel. Today, he is a writer and a personal trainer, and I expect great things from him. Um, as for me, I've been engaged in Black Jewish understanding and collaboration my entire professional life and could not be more excited about this conversation. We will begin the conversation with me offering some context as I see it and a set of propositions for what a new paradigm in Black Jewish relations might look like. Our panelists then will respond. So let's get started. First, some context. For nearly a century, Blacks and Jews were allies in the struggle for civil rights and equality in America. Sometimes risking their lives, they waged battle in the courts, at lunch counters, and in the academy. Their historical partnership culminated in the landmark court decisions and legislation of the 1960s, achievements for which both communities can be proud. As the Black Power Movement grew in prominence and made civil rights a racial movement, shutting many Jews out, and as many Jews moved out of the cities away from their Black neighbors and into the suburbs, the relationship between the two communities deteriorated. In recent years, it's become even more complicated. Nation of Islam Minister Louis Farrakhan, who has made anti-Semitic views clear, has been lauded by some in the Black community and condemned by many in the Jewish community. Farrakhan's standing has been a source of ongoing tension. More recently, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, which uh, many Jews wholeheartedly embraced, has provided a new platform for anti-Jewish and anti-Israel sentiment. Some in the Black Lives Matter movement accuse white American Jews of being complicit in white supremacy, and some progressive Jews, eager to be in their good graces, parrot these charges. In October 2016, I wrote an article arguing that Jews should engage in criminal justice reform, which I regarded as the civil rights movement of our time, 
and I argued that it was crucial that Jews remain proximal to black activists in engaging social issues. I ended the piece with the following observation. It will not be easy integrating the Jewish community into, the, into civil rights coalitions, some of which hold very different political sensibilities. Young activists routinely invoke phrases like white supremacy to describe Americans' prevailing power structure. And this may sound extreme to many mainstream Jews. Rather than feeling obliged to use these terms, however, the Jewish community can develop its own social justice vocabulary and come to the table in its own voice. Well, I was wrong, it turns out. It became apparent to me in the ensuing years that the civil rights movement of our time, such as it is, demanded not devotion to a common social agenda, but complete ideological uniformity and consensus. One cannot easily join criminal justice reform coalitions, I discovered, without professing total deference to a doctrine of racial essentialism. The drive for ideological conformity, in my view, is not good for blacks, Jews, or the country at large. We need a new paradigm in black Jewish relations. And so I'm going to offer a few propositions for discussion. One, neither the black community nor the Jewish community are monolithic. We are highly diversified politically, ideologically, and economically. There is no reason why we should allow radical voices in either community to define all of black Jewish relations, or that we should de deem divisive figures the authentic representation representatives of our communities. Jews and blacks that share a set of values and ideological commitments can and should work together. Two, the, greater issue, the greatest issue of the day is the health of our liberal democracy. It forces, it forces on the far left and on the far right continue to chip away at the foundations of our democratic republic and undermine healthy discourse. Both communities will suffer for it, along with countrymen of all races and religions. Blacks and Jews have played a crucial role in helping America live up to its own highest ideals, and we have an indispensable role ensuring America does so in the future. Three, as heirs of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, now is the time for us to recommit to Dr. Martin Luther King's original vision of a colorblind society so that our children will, in the words of the great civil rights leader, quote, one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But until that time, we have work to do. Four. There are real social issues that need resolving, our criminal justice system among them. Blacks and Jews who share an agenda on important social issues can and should come together to address them. There should not be ideological litmus tests attached to engaging in such change as there are now. For the person in jail and his family on low-level drug charges, it matters much less whether the drug laws were intentionally put in place to oppress Black people than it does that they are fixed by people of goodwill no matter what they believe about systemic racism. And finally, five, in many ways, this new paradigm in black Jewish relations is not new at all, but deeply embedded in our historical consciousness. It is up to us to revive this historical bond and paradigm and to apply a new old paradigm to the challenges of today. So those are my propositions, and I'd like to start with uh, my friend Eric Smith, the, uh, the head of Free Black Thought founder of Free Black Thought to uh, respond and to expand and to agree or hopefully disagree with me as well. So, Eric. Uh, thank you for letting me go first. Um, as the uh, apparently one 
non-Jew here, I need to explain why I'm here and also uh, address the uh, propositions. Um, proposition one is all about viewpoint diversity, which is uh, what uh, I and, and my co-founders at Free Black Thought are all about, especially in the um, Black community. Um, propositions two and three, uh, the greatest issue of the day is the health of our liberal democracy and uh, the points about Martin Luther King's uh, you know, colorblind ideology, uh, they speak to the, the concept of merit, right? Um, if you enter into any critical race theory circle, uh, proponents of critical race theory or, or something comparable to uh, critical race theory, um, you will see that merit is demonized, right? As a kind of uh, insidious ploy to maintain white supremacy. Um, so if Jews are as successful, if not more so than white people in, in various ways, they're implicated in uh, what's called systemic racism. I think that's a problem uh, for various obvious reasons. Um, your fourth proposition uh, about real social issues speaks to the need for pragmatism and uh, uh, dealing with uh, civil rights issues. Um, looking, agreeing upon a goal and figuring out the steps to get there collaboratively, right? I think that's missing from a lot of uh, uh, contemporary activism, especially anti-racism. Um, and lastly, um, number five reminds me of the concept of memes, not internet memes, not us, you know, Facebook and things like that. I'm going way back. Uh, Richard Dawkins uh, defined memes as uh, an, an, an idea or a behavior that replicates virally in, in, in a culture, right? Uh, if not an entire society. And I fear that within um, a lot of uh, African-American circles in the United States, anti-Semitism is becoming a meme, right? Uh, it's a way of um, kind of virtue signaling uh, to a large degree. We see a lot of celebrities who are either uh, outright anti-Semitic or, you know, adjacent to anti-Semitism. Um, one of my favorite team is the, the Philadelphia Eagles and just the Sean Jackson, a wide receiver, a, a good one when he's healthy, said some questionable things uh, uh, about the Jewish community. And, you know, I, some people, you know, rightfully, uh, you know, disowned him for that. But many people did not. And other people started echoing those sentiments. And I, I fear that anti-Semitism is going to become one of the values, attitudes, and beliefs of African-American discourse. Um, and that's why I'm here, because I'm interested in all those things. And I want to make sure that last thing definitely does not happen. Great, thank you so much, Eric. Let's turn to Brandy for her thoughts. Um, well, first, I wanna say thank you for having me here. Um, this is, I'm, I'm very excited to be part of this conversation. Um, I wanna focus on the third point you made about Dr. King's idea of colorblindness. And I think what we're seeing is actually a result of colorblindness. Um, the idea that we have to be the same to get along instead of actually acknowledging differences as, as being something to celebrate in diversity. And I think that that's possibly one of the reasons why Jews are painted as white. There hasn't been real conversation about the diversity of different communities 
everything has been viewed through this monolithic prism that I think allows false narratives to perpetuate through different communities. And I think that right now, looking at um, leaders of so-called social justice movements, they're of a certain generation that grew up and were schooled in ideas of colorblindness, so much so that it erases the idea of differences as a positive versus a negative. And we're seeing instead of social justice, social vengeance. Hmm. Powerful. We'll have to get back to that idea of whether colorblindness is the right new paradigm or the wrong paradigm and whether we need a, a different form of diversity. But before we do that, let's go to uh, David Ben Moshe. Yeah, thank you for having me. As you can hear, I'm a little bit hoarse today. I lost my voice a few days ago. Kind of with two young kids, just diseases seem to always be going around. But thank you for having me. The first thing I want to talk about is a piece that you brought up in the context section that I want to push back on a little bit, which is that criminal uh, justice reform is the civil rights movement of our generation. I think that's definitely true for America, but not on a world scale. I think we have this conversation, it's important to remember that as the world becomes more globalized and different countries start interacting, that we can't just think of America as the only set of problems, especially when it comes to black and Jewish relationships, because in addition to the relationship that Israel and the Jews have with America, there's also the relationship between Israel and the Jews with many, many countries in Africa, which are also full of black people. Going into the propositions, I overall agree with them. Going with the first proposition, I like to always bring up one of the big differences I see between the black community and the Jewish community. As someone who's black and Jewish, I believe that we need to get to this point of colorblindness, which is a great goal that Martin Luther King stated and that is in the later points where the color of my skin does not matter. On the other hand, I think it's always important that my Jewish identity is a part of me. And the real difference I see between those two identities is I see my Jewish identity as an inclusive identity and my black identity as an exclusive identity. And what I mean by that is black is a social construct that does not allow others to enter into it and therefore is very easily used as a tool of division. For example, Eric brought up at the beginning that like, oh, I'm the only one on this who's not Jewish, but you know, in five years times, he could be. On the other hand, you, David, there's no process you could do to become a black person or an African-American. And that is a big difference between the two identities, which is one of the reasons why this colorblindness with these unchangeable, unwelcoming identities is not the direction that the human race needs to be going. Interesting. Um, Eric, do you, you know, there's been a lot of talk in our circles about whether colorblindness is the right paradigm um, for now or whether it's a distant future aspiration, whether we, you know, but we need in the meantime, racial consciousness in order to um, get to that point so that we can ameliorate some of our past uh, and current disparities. What do you think about that? Both of, both David and Brandy pushed, uh, uh, went in different directions on the issue of colorblindness. Where do you fall? Um, 
I want to re-acknowledge that colorblindness is a metaphor, right? And not a literal thing. Nobody's walking around thinking that people are translucent. The whole point of colorblindness is to minimize partiality, right? Um, it, it's to, whether I like you or hate you has nothing to do with your skin color. That's the point of colorblindness. Um, whether uh, you get this job or not, does it depend on your skin color, right? It depends on your uh, ability to do the job. Um, and for that reason, I embrace colorblindness. You can be colorblind without ignoring people's uh, uh, identities and differences and things like that. You can acknowledge those identities and differences, but you're colorblind in that that person's merit, uh, that person's skill, right? Um, that person's uh, usefulness for the job does not depend on immutable characteristics like skin color. Brandy, you 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 raised this issue. What did you think about what Eric just stated? I think that that's brilliant, and that's the point. When people use, "Oh, I'm colorblind," it's I don't see color. Like I'm not acknowledging your difference because if I did, that would mean I would have to treat you differently. And I think that that's an important part to bring up. It's not that I don't want somebody to see that I am a black woman. I am. I'm proud of it. It's something to me that sh that I embrace. It and that and and like like Eric mentioned, that doesn't mean that I should be judged or excluded from positions of prof uh, professional positions, from spaces in academia, et cetera, et cetera, because I'm a black woman. But anytime the conversation comes up, I hear. I'm always, oh, I don't see color. And I'm like, well, I, that's part of who I am. It's, you're telling me to my face that you don't see a piece of me. Because if you did, it would be a problem. I take issue with that. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm glad we fleshed that out a little bit. I don't think you don't hear, again, uh, in the spirit of free black thought, we're trying to platform voices and ideas that you don't often hear in the public sphere. And I think this is a very interesting and, and, and rich example of that. Um, I want to turn to the issue of sort of racism and anti-Semitism for a moment. And I think I'll, I'll start with anti-Semitism. I've uh, been a long time, as I said before, um, interlocutor with, with Black community and Black Jewish relations. And over the years, especially before Black Lives Matter movement sort of came into the public sphere, we talked a lot about Louis Farrakhan. Um, and um, I remember the Million Man March, which became a major, major issue uh, between Jews and Blacks. Uh, there were a few Blacks, uh, few Black leaders who refused to participate in it because they didn't want to hurt their friends in the Jewish world. But many thought that this was unfair on the part of the Jewish community to highlight Farrakhan's anti-Semitism when the much more compelling issues were um, were on the table at the Million Man March. I, I want to start with, let's say, for David. Um, I know, you know, you were probably a young young guy during those times, but how did you, over time, come to see the Million Man March and the issue of Black anti-Semitism? Especially when it comes to statements like those that come from Farrakhan. It is, to me, a clear example of an unacceptable double standard. Anti-Semitism must be fought in every way possible. Racism must be fought in every way possible. Just because someone is speaking about racism, them holding anti-Semitic views is an important factor because it shows that they are 
a hypocrite, that they are really going out for the things that benefit them instead of recognizing the challenges that face other communities. Brandy, how about you? I don't, I mean, I've questioned for years how anyone would lift up uh, Farrakhan as any type of leader. It's not just his anti-Semitism, it's his misogyny, it's his homophobia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he, when he makes statements that the likes of David Duke agree with, he can't be representative of the black community regardless of how diverse our, we are. Eric? I think when looking for leaders in a community, you know, you you embrace the person who's out there, who's extroverted, who, uh, you know, tells it like it is and things like that. We know how attractive of a trait that is um, in this country, uh, telling it like it is. Um, unfortunately, um, Farrakhan is one of those people to a lot of African-Americans. I remember around the time of the Million Man March, how, um, uh, how systemic uh, Farrakhan was in the hip hop world. I remember Professor Griff from um, Public Enemy uh, agreeing with uh, Farrakhan and saying some anti-Semitic things. He got kicked out of Public Enemy for it, right? Um, but he was also, uh, you know, kind of a voice of many African American uh, hip hop fans at the time. So yes, that is definitely a problem. I am not a fan of uh, Farrakhan. Uh, in, in, in many ways. And the fact that he is considered a leader, the fact that, you know, rappers are considered leaders, um, you know, in, in, in such a, you know, uh, important way, I think is an issue. I mean, we, we, we have to start listening to academics. That's not a plug for myself. I'm just saying. Um, and, um, and other thought leaders who have done this research, who have looked into it and things like that, and not just celebrities or, uh, um, polarizing figures like Farrakhan. Hmm. So one of the things that I, I pushed a little bit in my propositions was this idea that, um, that, that Blacks and Jews have an opportunity to fight for a liberal society, that we bring with us a history of fighting for justice and um, and the way that that's being expressed in the public sphere now is generally a fight against systemic racism. Um, is there also an argument to be made that Jews and Blacks should be joining forces, as we are at least in this conversation today, about um, fighting for liberalism and fighting against the imposition of critical social justice ideology in our institutions. What do you think the what do you think the opportunity for that is? Maybe I'll start with you, Eric. Well, unfortunately, critical race theory doesn't trust a lot of uh, liberal values. They see it like merit, one of them, um, as a ploy to maintain white supremacy. So right there, we already start off with a problem. Um, however, I think a, uh, a powerful thing in bringing people together, groups together, is what um, Mustafar Sharif, like in the 60s or something, um, called superordinate goals, right? Um, two groups want the same thing to better themselves. And the way to get that thing is to work together. It's by necessity, right? Um, studies show that that uh, actually enhances camaraderie um, when you are both going towards the same goal for, you know, 
selfish reasons, but you need each other to acquire that. Um, what that goal is, is the question, right? Um, since uh, a lot of anti-racists don't trust classical liberal values, um, liberal democracy uh, is you know, uh, probably not the best goal right now, but what is? I have no idea. I wish I had an answer for you. I, I do think that has to be the topic of conversation, uh, not just among blacks and Jews, but within society. Right. David, what do you think about liberal democracy as a kind of agenda? And expand it, if you will, to criminal justice reform as well. To what degree do you think there's a common agenda for Jews and blacks on the issue of a criminal justice reform or liberal democracy or both? First, to discuss liberal democracy, I think the fight for the liberal values of democracy is the primary challenge that is attacking the democratic world in general right now. And everyone who believes in democracy needs to fight for it. Democracy can only flourish if we're not afraid to express our opinions and disagree in each other. As I learned democracy way back in school, the most basic thing we're fighting for is majority rule and minority rights. And if the minority is silenced and we're unable to listen to them, we can't stand up for their rights. And this critical race theory idea of silencing all of the opposition is just way too similar to the cultural revolution of China, where there's the party line, you have to stick with the party line and no other thoughts or ideas are acceptable. And that is the end of the democracy and the beginning of a totalitarian regime where your thoughts are monitored and disagreement is enough to get you incarcerated or punished. As far as both the blacks and the Jews working together on criminal justice reform, I think that they are a perfect match for the task. African-Americans and black people and really brown people of all different kinds have suffered the most from our current system of mass incarceration, which is unequivocally a terrible human rights violation that we need to look at and fix and have a reckoning with. And I think a lot of the experiences that come from Jewish culture and Jewish history can help us come to a positive reckoning when it comes to acknowledging what has gone wrong in the past, but more importantly, focusing on building a better future. We can disagree about how systemically racist it is, about how it became that way, whether or not that's way, who's responsible. But we want to use our knowledge of the past to look at our present situation to create a better future. And I believe that is part of the Jewish idea of how we approach the world. And it's also how the Black community needs to look at the situation in the world so we can all step into a better future together. Right. Brandy, what do you think? When I think about liberal democratic values, I think about two things. One, freedom of expression, to have the space to disagree, 
um, to not toe the party line um, without fear of punishment. And the other is the building of civil society. So um, the, one of the things that democracies have is civil society. And those are, in my opinion, built in K through 12 public schools. That's where civics is built. That's where learning about what makes up this, the community you live in, um, learning all of that happens in, in schooling. And the idea um, that's coming out of the extreme left right now is erasing and acknowledging all of those things that actually build liberal democracy. So what happens is you have, um, you have one ideology pushed at the expense of free thought. And so figuring out how do two communities, how, how, do, how does the Black American and Jewish American community work together um, to achieve anything, whether it's criminal justice reform or any other human rights issue uh, in an environment that doesn't allow freedom of expression without fear of punishment, punishment from, I mean, something extreme, what happens in an authoritarian regime like being jailed or being not getting tenure um, in a university because you're not spewing the same liberal rhetoric that's coming that the the university department wants to push any anything like that equals punishment and if there isn't the space to actually express ideology and have discourse and discussion without fear of punishment um i worry that the foundations of liberal democracy won't hold or can't hold right thank you um so we continue to get we we continue to get some questions from the audience. I'd urge others to do so. Um, and there seems to be a lot of interest in sort of going back to this issue of colorblindness. Um, you know, it's not every day that we're able to discuss this openly, and I think people naturally have some pent-up views that they want to get out there. So I want to read a couple of these comments and see if we can um, talk about identity and colorblindness. It's interesting. We're talking about colorblindness, and yet we are having a discussion on Black Jewish relations, which inherently invokes the idea of color. Helen Pluckrose, who's one of the great thinkers in the sphere of liberalism, um, wrote in, interesting thoughts on colorblindness. I think the term should only apply to a principle of not evaluating people by their race. It shouldn't be a pressure, should, there shouldn't be pressure not to have a cultural identity. Um, and um, she goes on to say that equality doesn't have to be sameness. If someone's Caribbean culture is important to them, this just means it is part of them, like my British tea drinking is part of me, not superior or inferior. Um, and uh, Andrew Peston, who's an academic and thinker, um, added, how uh, the classic question, how to simultaneously promote real equality with affirmations of ethnic, cultural, and racial identity. Um, so any, any thoughts on this, on this um, sort of challenge of both maintaining one's own identity, and I think, Brandy, you spoke to this, and at the same time, trying to build this sense of equality. Eric, let's, let's start with you. Are people really having a hard time doing that? I mean, I, I remember as a child understanding what color, colorblindness meant. It didn't mean I didn't see somebody's color, literally. You know, I, I, was, I was 10 and I got that point. How are people still confused about this? I'm sorry, I'm being snarky right now, but I'm really frustrated yeah. by people who, um, you know, bristle with this concept of colorblindness. You can acknowledge somebody's cultural identities and be colorblind in that their skin color is not the most important thing about them and not the thing you look at when judging uh, their skills, 
um, their marriage or what have you. That's what colorblindness is. It's really simple. And I don't think it's that hard to acknowledge somebody's identity and um, not put so much weight on race that uh, it's their most important factor. Brandy? Um, I think you hit the nail on the head. You said acknowledge their individuality. Well, right now what's happening is individuality is being ignored, right? Because that, that um, includes things like merit. Instead, groupthink is being pushed. So if, if, if there's an ignoring of individuality, then what you're saying should happen isn't. Uh, within the Black community or? No, with, within social justice movements. So it's, it's looking at, so an example, okay, we can address systemic racism. I think that, you know, civil rights throughout the centuries in the United States have addressed systemic racism, but they're doing it at the expense of addressing individual racism. Right. Yes. Well, those social justice uh, activists are the ones pushing back against colorblindness, right? Um, they're the ones who are saying, you know, uh, uh, white America is trying to push this idea that my skin color and identity doesn't mean anything, uh, when that's not the entire point of colorblindness uh, at all. So within those social justice circles, um, there is this push against colorblindness, and uh, I just don't get it. I think they're also exhibiting the hypocrisy, because yeah. while they're saying, okay, we should be colorblind, but white people are doing A, B, C, D. Right. So it's, and you can't have it both ways. It doesn't make sense. David, you want to add anything to that? I think it's very important we talk about people connecting to their cultural identities and talking about the differences between culture. And this is a very unpopular idea in the progressive world that not all parts of people's culture are positive and need to be brought into everyone's future. Things like honor killings. There's many things that are not better or worse they're just different like whether you want to drink you know tea with milk or drink coffee does not matter but there's other cultural ideas people bring that we should all be able to agree are wrong and not productive to the society we want to be, build and be able to let go and one of the things that we all need to do with our own personal histories and culture is look back and think what from my culture and history i want to bring forth what edifies me, what helps me create a better world, not just for me, but for everyone around me, and what parts of my cultural identity can I say, hey, back then, they got it wrong. I can't agree with this. We need to move on and do something different. So I'm going to uh, pivot here for a second. One of the criticisms of a forum like this is going to come from um, social justice left that might say, neither of you, Jews and Blacks and Jews and Blacks, as the case may be, um, are really speaking for your communities, that um, your communities overwhelmingly um, are, are ideologically monolithic on these issues, that, um, that, the, that the true and authentic representation of the Black community should be um, woke voices, if you will, and they could even say the same about the Jewish community. The vast majority of the Jewish community is not having this conversation. As somebody who's been in the Jewish world for a long time and been in these spaces, I can tell you that I'm not sure I would have been able to host any one of you three voices in any forum that I was associated with in the past. 
because it would have been viewed as me cherry picking somebody from the black community who represents a view that I might be sympathetic with, but doesn't really represent their community. How do you think of that challenge first? And what do we do about it second? Um, I guess I can go. I, um, I am not here. Let me just be clear about that. Representing the black community, that, that would be hypocritical on my part since I'm a co-founder of Free Black Thought, which is all about viewpoint diversity in the black community. Um, I also have an issue with uh, these two ideas. Uh, am I a black person named Eric Smith or am I Eric Smith who happens to be black, right? Those are two different takes on, on what we're talking about right now uh, regarding representation and things like that. Uh, I typically go with, I'm Eric Smith who happens to be black. Uh, other people do the other way, that's fine. But the fact that you know those two ideas coexist within black communities is something that isn't acknowledged enough. And um, I plan, and my co-founders at Free Black Thought plan on expressing loudly and often that those viewpoints are there. Great. Brandy. Um, I find what it do you think about this authentic representation idea? I find it interesting that anyone who um, self-proclaims to be progressive would want to uh, think that they have any idea of what represents anything. Uh, I, I find that a very um, entitled position to take to say what one person represents or who they represent or no, most people believe like I believe, um, it's very egotistical. And I agree agree with what um, Eric said. I'm not, I'm here representing Brandy, that's who I am. Um, there have, has been a lot of conversation and discussion where people are pushing, no, most people agree with us. And when it comes to polling or in the political world, um, a lot of that has just been proven to not be true. I think that there's this idea that, you know, there are more, um, what is the term, the silent majority. And every time that idea has been pushed, it's been proven false. And there's been this um, erasure of moderation and moderates and pragmatism and rationality that I think isn't really reflective of many different communities, at least in the United States. Great, thank you. David, thoughts? Speaking to that person, I would tell them this. <clears throat> when I speak my thoughts and my views, they are the accumulation of my life experiences and what I've learned so far to date. And when it comes to someone who is woke, who is in college or super liberal and have met the black people around college and seen terrible things happen to black people on TV, telling me what people in the black community think. I just want them to know like, have you ever been to the projects? Have you ever been inside prison? Like there are the places where a lot of this injustice is happening. And if you take the time to go to those places and talk to the people and really see what their life is like, what they feel, and what things they want to change in society, you'll probably very quickly find out that the person who's incarcerated for selling drugs doesn't care about the microaggression on Twitter. He cares about 
being able to get out and make an honest living and support his family and maintain his freedom. And our society does not do a good job of empowering that man to be able to do those things. Here, here. So we've got work to do together on that issue. Um, so the issue um, I want to talk about for a second is the discourse around Jews of color. And I, I think um, we have two Jews of color uh, on this call, as we've said. Um, Jews of color, um, it's probably a category that probably 10 years ago, you didn't hear much. There've certainly been black Jews and other Jews of color um, for many, for, for an entire American Jewish experience. Um, but the way that the, that, that the discourse has emerged is that Jews of color are sort of a category of oppression within the Jewish community, that they have been largely excluded um, in Jewish life, that they haven't been widely recognized that Jews of color have faced indignities, and I've seen this, so I'm I'm not discounting it, that they face indignities in synagogue where, where somebody might say, uh, think that they're the help. Um, and um, and then and then find out that they're actually just a congregant or a visiting person and and so forth. Um, I know, David, you faced your own challenges in Israel uh, with Aliyah, uh, making becoming a citizen in Israel. Um, and, and there's another more recent charge I've heard that um, that white Jews are have been complicit in white supremacy as well, and that that's part of the um, black Jewish experience in America is with their fellow Jews is uh, complicity in white supremacy. Um, can you tell me what you think about the category of Jews of color um, and what you think the Jewish community needs to do to live up to its own highest ideals. And why don't I start with Brandy on that? I reject those terms. I don't use white Jews and Jews of color, or Jews to Jews to Jew. I think that it's very um, American centric. And I also acknowledge that as a black Jewish woman going into a non-black Jewish Jewish space, um, I've faced uh, some of the things that you you've mentioned before. And I think that that really is just reflective of American society that isn't necessarily rooted in racism, but more so colorism. So the idea that a Jewish person looks only like this, we tend in the United States to shrink people down to really small boxes, communities, you know, to, to, to making them very, very, very small. And that's the only way that you could possibly be Jewish or the only way you could be black the only way you could be a woman is to be fit in this very small, tiny mold. Um, Jewish people predate race. And we don't get that, that idea in the United States because we're very American-centric here. We don't get a more international and global point of view. And that, that doesn't mean just non-Jews have that. I think the Jewish Americans also adopt a lot of that American-centric ideology. And I think that that's part of um, the reason that people like me have faced the issues we faced going into non-Black Jewish spaces. Hmm. David, what, what do you think? I think the key to dealing with this is education and exposure. When I say education, it's just bringing more stories of Jews of different cultures, different heritages, and different races 
into the discourse about the Jewish people so that people can see and hear about themselves so they can know about them. And next is just repetition and exposure. Kind of you can hear one story about a black Jew and it's not enough to break the paradigm you have in your head of that's not what a Jew looks like. The thing that will break that is just you being exposed to enough of them that you become used to the idea and it's no longer abnormal. And it's something we see in Israel too. Like all the time I'll be in the supermarket or walking down the street and someone will stop me and be like, oh, are you Jewish? Now I walk around and I wear a kippah and my tzitzit are hanging out and I'm generally speaking Hebrew. Like that's, those are three pretty good signs that I'm probably Jewish regardless of what my skin color looks like. But it takes people, like they always double take when they see that and they feel the need to start the conversation by asking that question instead of saying like, oh, I see you're Jewish and you have an English accent. Can you tell me more about where you come from? It always starts off with the, are you Jewish? And that is a place of again, ignorance and exposure, which we could do better with in Israel by just more interaction between the communities. And there's plenty of black Jews in Israel. There's a huge Ethiopian community and there's plenty of black Jews worldwide, but as they grow to prominence and people see more of them, it won't just feel like something that's the odd one out or strange, it will become normalized. And that's a process that takes time and repetitions. Hmm. Eric, do you have any thoughts on this uh, idea of being Jewish and black and or Jews of color? I, I have nothing to contribute to this aspect of the conversation. I am not Jewish. I don't have that experience. So I'm going to shut up and listen. Okay, gotcha. So um, Helen Pluckrose, again, mentioned that uh, David ben, ben Moshe was speaking of class issues here. And it's something that I, <clears throat> I'm wondering if we can explore for a minute. You know, we talk a lot about race and racism, but it sometimes seems to me that underneath some of the disparities that we talk about, which are often attributed to racism, what we really can find is, is class. Um, and economic issues. I've seen that with the health disparities that once you control for class, you find that, that some of the racial disparities are really class disparities and that poor white people or Latino people face some of the same health disparities that black people do. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can hit on that to what degree do some of these disparities that we're seeing and debating in the public sphere, are they really functions of class and not race? Uh, we could start with Eric on that one. Um, I think it's mostly class, really, and, and uh, has been for quite some time. I think uh, middle and upper middle class uh, sensibilities align more with uh, classical liberal values, uh, and it's more uh, you know normalized uh, in uh, middle and upper middle class circles. So to abide by those isn't to sell out or to imitate or something like that. So the, this idea that if you're successful and if you are fulfilled, then you must have done something wrong. You must be um, you know, helping the oppressor or wanting to be the oppressor or something like that. Um, that ignores you know, um, you know, uh, social construction within socioeconomic uh, so circles, right? Um, 
middle and upper middle class uh, people tend to have different avenues or different resources available to them that others don't. And, you know, abiding by those resources, uh, again, tends to align with um, looking at classical liberal values as a good thing. Right. Uh, so that's my answer. Hmm. David, what do you think? I'm going to disagree with that slightly. I don't think that class is the main underlying issue. I think we look at the problem of disparity in our modern world, we need to always consider it what I have to call a multifactorial problem, in that we have many, many different factors playing in, and they're all interacting in ways that aren't really predictable because we can't do that fun thing they do in science where let's get all the variables exactly the same and change just one variable and then measure the results. Because it's so complex and intertwined and race has an effect on class, class has an effect on race. We talk about different groups in the country of the United States, like when people came to the country has a big effect on them. A lot of new immigrants tend to be highly successful very quickly, such as like the Caribbean American community and a lot of the Asian community. And a lot of that is, I like to think about the people who have the mental attitude where they want to push themselves to go to a new country to fight for opportunity, which is a difficult thing, are the type of people who will probably be successful instead of like the people who are like, you know what, things are okay right here. I'm just going to like hang out. And I don't like to say what issue is the main issue. I don't think it's race. I don't think it's class. I think it is a plethora of issues that we need to always step back, look at the whole picture, and just think about how we can improve each individual aspect. And as we improve the aspects over time, we'll get a more equitable society that will treat everyone better. Uh, man, David, can I, Sure. and Moshi, can I ask you a question? Um, do you think we talk yeah. about class enough? I mean, yes, there are, there are various factors. Yeah, do you think we talk about class enough? I would rather say that, you know, we don't talk about class enough. You're right. I'm going to give you that one. I think that <laughs> well, I, yeah. I'm just asking. You know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was initially going to say that we talk about race too much, but I think that it's more accurate, like once I thought about it a little bit, to say we don't talk about class enough because we tend to focus in on race like it's the only one or as if there's no problems at all. There's a great amount of society that wants to talk about like, race is no longer an issue. We've had a black president. If you can't get it together, it is 100% your fault. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and be successful. And when we do talk about disparities, we only talk about race, but I think when you talk about all the different factors more, probably race doesn't need to be stepped at more, but everything else we need to talk about more. Hmm. Brandy? That's an interesting one. I actually have to think on it. Um, I, I do agree that we don't talk about class enough, or maybe not enough. We don't talk about it on its own. Anytime class disparities brought up, it's always linked to race or linked to gender. It's not talked about uh, in an experiential or historical context. And I like the point that um, David brought up. The uh, immigrant story matters. How did you get here matters because that impacts the experiences after you're here and the generations that follow are here. And I don't think that those conversations are had where um, there's an understanding between communities 
as to why certain communities look different. So newer immigrants will look at black Americans that have been here and descended from enslaved people and wonder, well, what's taking you guys so long to catch up? And and black Americans will look at new immigrants um, and think, you know, okay, they had to have done something to achieve whatever socioeconomic higher status that they've achieved and whether that's being white adjacent and all the rest of the terms that are kind of being thrown out there. I mean, there isn't a real understanding in the history of what David's mentioned and said that who comes here and when the first wave comes and then the second wave of immigration, like the generations that follow and what that means for their socioeconomic status. We've gotten one question from Benjamin Pollack that the network of black people is far lower than other groups. What do our panelists think of some form of reparations to help ameliorate that disparity? Um, Eric, you want to start? What's your view on reparations? I actually um, have no idea what you think about reparations. Um, do I want to start? No, but I will. Um, <laughs> I, this, this, it's a, this is a difficult issue because in what form are these reparations coming, right? Is it institutional, right? Are we going to fund institutions in, in certain communities like education, for example, and uh, make that comparable to the best schools uh, in the country? Um, are we going to just hand over money, right? Uh, these things have to be discussed. And what's more, you know, um, there has to be an agreement on what to do with these reparations, right? Um, you know, uh, how are we going to use this money? Uh, are we going to use it and put it into the community? Are we going to use it individually and and uh, create upper mobility that way? All this is to say I have no idea. <laughs> Brandy? Um, when the question of reparations comes up, the first thing that I ask, I'll answer a question with a question is, what are you paying back for? If you're paying back for we, so that, you know, okay, this community can have equal financial status to this community, then I say, no, that's not an um, excuse for reparations. If you're talking about paying back a people that gave free labor, unpaid labor, okay, what form would they come in? I mean, this isn't about, okay, every white American has to write a check every month and that type of thing that get you know, where the conversation devolves down into. You're talking about, okay, well, the United States as a country benefited off of the free labor of generations of enslaved people, and these are their descendants. So, okay, tax breaks are not paying taxes in this, maybe. I don't, but I think it's more complicated than we have time for here, but also then the conversations really go. What's being repaid? Hmm. David? So I get to go last and I still don't have a good answer. I mean, it is <laughs> so complex on so many levels. Like, I don't believe that just handing people money ever solves any problem. Because if you don't have the education to back up how to use that money responsibly, it just gets wasted. We also can talk about like, who gets it? Like, do you have to be the direct descendant of an African-American slave? Say your ancestors came over after slavery and weren't actually enslaved, but you still look black. So you've had to deal with like the racial tensions, but you didn't do the free labor. Like, do you get the check too? Does like a new immigrant from an African country get it because they've lived a few years having to live with the stigma of the way they look? I really, have no idea what reparations could look like 
and whether or not I would think they're a good idea completely depends on what it looks like and how it helps people and how it makes our society better. Hmm. What I think is a better question to ask is how we can show not just America, but the world that we've honestly come to a reckoning and an admittance of the things that went wrong in the development in this country and a commitment to make the country better. Kind of, I thought of that when I was watching, there's an excellent TED talk by a guy named Brian Stevenson. Um, and in his TED talk, he brought up something, because I used to think that like, oh, you know, America has dealt with all the wrongs, you know, they've admitted they're wrong, like there's still wrong things going on, they need to admit those are wrong and fix it. But I think the problem goes deeper than that because of something I heard in this TED talk. In the TED talk, he talks about going to Germany and speaking with someone about the death penalty in America. And one of the lawyers comes to him after the talk and says, we couldn't have the death penalty in Germany with our history of murdering people systemically, we couldn't have any sort of program that was killing people under the guidance of law for any reason, because just we know what we did and there's the fear that the system could be used in the wrong way. And then he responds back that, you no, know, he's never really thought of it that way, but you know, if Germany had capital punishment and for some reason were murdering people that happened to be predominantly Jewish, it would make him very uncomfortable. And it seems like it would make the Germans very uncomfortable. But in America, where we go from slavery to Jim Crow to a prison system that predominantly is incarcerating African-Americans and still so many people can't see that there's any racial problem at any step of the way, I think shows that we need to come to a reckoning that these problems can happen and not only fix them now, but work on preventing them in the future. Mm. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm looking through my crystal ball and I see a very rich conversation in the future on reparations with some heterodox thinkers and voices to really explore this topic further. So um, one last question, we're running out of time here, but I really, there was, there was a, apparently a very robust conversation going on in the background here about terminology and whether we should use terms like woke, whether we should talk about critical race theory, which some argue is an, you know, an academic idea, whether we should use the term critical social justice, which I tend to use a lot, um, whether we should use racial essentialism or anti-racism. Can you all give your sense of what the terminology ought to be? Hopefully one day we're going to settle this and we know what to talk about. Eric, what? Uh, regarding critical race theory, um, when people say, well, you know, that's a uh, right, right wing uh, talking point um, meant to uh, demonize the left, um, I think it's more accurate to say something like critical social justice or critical white studies. Uh, D'Angelo, Robin D'Angelo herself refers to herself as a critical social justice um, scholar and not necessarily critical race theory. Now, critical race theorists and white studies um, scholars uh, do overlap uh, to some degree. 
Um, but what we're seeing in, you know, K through 12 in college, uh, those are the manifestations of uh, the tenets of anti-racist education that come from uh, the likes of Robin DiAngelo uh, and her ilk. So I tend, I'm, I'm starting to say critical social justice instead of critical race theory, just to make that distinction. And we'll see what they say about that. Beautiful. Brandy? I think that um, language shifts and changes. And the point of it is so that the message is understood. So I think that it's going to continue to be fluid so that the message is understood. So whether it's uh, CRT or CSJ or anything else, I think it's going to continue to evolve. What do you think, David? I pretty much have exactly the same answer as Brian just gave you. When I think about language, I think the language you should use depends 100% on the context that you find yourself in. Language to me is about two things, expression and understanding. If I can express myself in a way that feels accurate to me, you can understand me in a way that's accurate to what I was trying to express, then the language did the job. And as you chase language, it keeps changing. And also, I think the biggest thing we should be concerned about when it comes to what language you use is what context are we speaking in and who's the audience that we're speaking to so that our message can be well received. Sometimes certain words will just turn people off to the point where they won't listen to anything you say because you use a separate word or phrase. In that case, you should avoid that word because when we talk about the free expression of ideas, Part of it is people listening to you no matter what you have to say, but part of it is also you expressing yourself in a way that will speak to them. And that's part of how we change minds, not just yelling about like this word means this, that word means this, or using words that confuse people or aggravate or frustrate people. Great. So one proposition that I did not include in my list of propositions at the beginning, and I think I've learned from this conversation, I would add, which is perhaps us Blacks and Jews and Black Jews have something to show society. We can model a new discourse, a sensitive discourse, but an honest discourse around race and racism and around the social problems that we collectively face. And I, I hope we've done that today and I hope we can continue doing that in the future. And uh, this has certainly given us a lot to think about and a lot to plan for in the future. So I wanna thank our panelists, David, Eric, and Brandy. Thank you so much for this very rich conversation and thank all our viewers um, and supporters for being there for us and for supporting our organizations. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.